Let's pray. Lord God, we worship you. We praise you. You are glorious and beautiful. You are truth and love and mercy. And we praise you for those things. We thank you for who you are and all that you have done to show forth your glory and to redeem us out of sin and to display your grace and mercy in our lives. Um, I pray that today as we try and finish up our class through church history, that we would be particularly inspired by the folks that sort of laid the groundwork for modern missions and uh, that we would share their passion for the gospel going to the ends of the earth. So Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you want to grab one of those handouts. So we're, we're going to start on the second page there. Talk about the second great awakening. Uh, I, don't, I think it was maybe two weeks ago now, or maybe it was last week. We talked about the great awakening with Jonathan Edwards in, in England, in the New England, um, in like the mid-1700s. <clears throat> so the second great awakening came you know, roughly a generation later. And I'm just going to read this quote here to begin with. As the story usually goes, the first great awakening was, in Edwards's terms, a surprising work of God that was both preached and understood in very Calvinistic terms. The second great awakening, by contrast, was an orchestrated event whose theology was Arminian in that it stressed the roles that sinners can play in affecting their own conversions. Um, I would say that that is generally true, but that it's also a little bit more complex than that. Um, and, and I would say like most Calvinists regale the first great awakening because Edwards was part of it and Whitfield was part of it. And they really kind of poo-poo the second great awakening. And I'm, I'm sort of like mostly in that category, but you have to understand that in the wake of the first great awakening, there was a lot of division in the church. So there were consequences that came out of that that were negative. And in the wake of the second great awakening, although there was a lot of probably false conversions, there were true conversions. And so uh, we should just respect that in any work where man is involved, there's going to be dysfunction. In any work where God is involved, there's going to be glorious things that take place. Um, so at the heart of the Second Great Awakening, though, was a guy named Charles Finney. He was a lawyer until he was uh, converted or brought into the faith in 1821. After that, he just immediately went to preaching. He was discipled for a little bit by his pastor, but then he would eventually go on to teach theology for more than four decades. He, he's written a systematic theology as well. And he was probably the most significant of evangelical of his day, just like um, Edwards would have been the most significant guy kind of in his time period, at least in the Americas. But on revival, he wrote that religion is the work of man and revival is not a miracle but the result of the right use of the appropriate means. Thus, we can generate revival ourselves. So this is the aspect of Finney and the Second Great Awakening that I take issue with, and I would say most sort of theologically conservative or Calvinistic people would take issue with. 
So by the right use of means, he, he thought that, you know, we can use advertising to get people into these tent meetings. We'll have these long revival meetings. I think when you emotionally exhaust people, then you can also emotionally manipulate people. Um, he would use lay leadership, which I'm not opposed to that, but if you're going to do sound biblical teaching, you need to have lay leaders that are theologically equipped to do sound teaching. Um, public prayers, and, and then they had this thing called the anxious bench. So Finney was kind of good at spotting people who were in rough patches in their life, and he would bring them to the front of the room to put a lot of pressure on them to, to come forward during sort of the altar call. So the whole altar call cultural movement that's still present in the American church today really goes back to the Second Great Awakening and Finney. And, um, you know, there, there's even some of this present today. I don't know if you guys know the name Stephen Furtick, but he's a pastor of a big church in South Carolina, I think it is, called Elevation Church. And uh, it came to light a couple of years ago that when they do these big baptism services where they have like, you know, a few hundred people get baptized, the first 10 to 20 people that stand up in his congregation are like plants. They've been put there by the staff to stand up, to come forward, to encourage other people. Other people don't know this, but so that it looks like, oh, God's really moving and I kind of want to get in on that and I come forward as well. That would be sort of... Uh, traced back to the the kind of emotional experience that Finney was looking for to bring people. And Finney would be like, that's fine if that's what it takes to get people to convert. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, just another concept from Finney. A change in moral character must take place and a person is able to make that change for himself. I don't think that's a direct quote from Finney. But that is his theological perspective. And I would call that at best semi-Pelagianism. If you remember discussing Pelagianism, that goes all the way back to the early church. Pelagius believed that man has basically a spark of divinity in himself. And he can realize that. And that's kind of what enter, brings him into the kingdom of God. Um, at worst, that's just straight up Pelagianism. And Pelagius was called a heretic by the early church, although I would say today the Catholic Church is semi-Pelagian. They would say that justification and sanctification are kind of wed together, and you find yourself in right standing before God because of a mix of God's mercy and your good works. Okay, we would deny that. We would say salvation is wholly a work of God. If you remember, we talked about this in terms of monergism versus synergism. Justification is monergistic, mono meaning one. God is the sole actor in that. Um, you can tell from that, that second bullet point there that Finney wouldn't really have agreed with that. Whatever you think of Finney, and you know, he's kind of a controversial guy. Again, some people really love him, some people really hate him. Certainly the people who would follow in his footsteps went too far. Um, and I think that that ultimately led to like false conversions, people having a very emotional experience, but it just being emotional. And then when kind of the emotion subsides, they, they go right back to where they were. Uh, yeah, I think you see that when people are like, yeah, I've, you know, I've recommitted my life to the Lord five times. Um, I would say you're just not a believer, right? And 
I, I don't want to be too harsh on that, but I think you're miscommunicating the gospel if if you if you have somebody who says that they've recommitted their life to Christ five times. Okay. Um, and you know what's funny about that is Edwards wrote about having an emotional or an affection, an affectious experience of God. So the sort of intellectual or reformed Calvinistic view is not opposed to that. We just wouldn't say that that's all the evidence that you've had an encounter with God. That's not the sum of the evidence. All right, any questions on the Second Great Awakening? Then let's move into Protestant missions. And this is an area that's just close to my heart. Uh, if I wasn't pastoring a church in Maricopa, I would like to be in the Middle East church planting. That was the direction. If you'd asked me, like, senior year of high school, freshman year of college, what do you want to do with your life? I would say I want to go to Mecca and plant churches in Saudi Arabia and die a martyr by the time I'm 35. That was, like, my life goal. God had different plans in mind for me. But Protestant missions... Um, is a beautiful thing. And one of the things that we mentioned a couple weeks ago is sort of the tragedy that in the midst of the Reformation, the idea of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth was kind of laid to the side. And I think it's sort of understandable because you have these reformers who are trying to reorient the church in a biblical direction. And that's a monumental task. So I can kind of understand why this went to the side. But it's sad that it took so many, you know, two centuries basically after the Reformation before the church is really going to get a hunger again for taking the gospel to, to the ends of the earth. Um, and this is a really radical movement. I mean, these are, we're going to talk about a couple of people that have been heroes of mine for like most of my life. Um, and I would say there's a passage in Hebrews, is it chapter 11, that talks about men of whom the world were, was not worthy. Uh, it, that's the passage that talks about they were sawed in two, they were fed to wild animals. These are people who bore reproach for the name of Jesus, bore suffering and hardship so that the gospel would be clear in the midst of opposition. And these, these martyrs, well, I don't know that I should call them martyrs. These people should be counted among them for the work that they did. Quick note on... Because our culture is changing so much, and honestly, I think history is sort of being rewritten. Um, and America is being trashed for being colonialistic and coming out of, you know, Western imperialism. And there is certainly some truth to that. But uh, what's being asserted is that Christianity was also wrapped up in this. And I, I want to make a note here that, like, the East India Trading Company uh, and several of the other big sort of corporations that were profiting off of imperialism and colonialism, they actually hated the missionaries that were present in the countries where they were gaining power. Anybody want to guess why? The reason is because where the missionaries went, they educated people, they taught them to read, they raised the standard of living, they encouraged human dignity, all these biblical principles they passed on to the people that they were ministering to. And companies like the East India Trading Company that wanted to just exploit people didn't want people that they were interacting with in these other countries to understand human dignity. They didn't want them to dislike things like slavery. They didn't want them to be able to read or, or be educated. 
And so a lot of times where, where companies like East India Trading Company, I'm just using them as an example, where they went into a country like India and wanted to keep the missionaries out, um, the missionaries were actually fighting against imperialism and colonialism, which is maybe something you're not going to hear if you're getting your information just from secular sources. Um, and I would say the same is true of even colonizing governments. You know, they didn't want these missionaries present because they knew that it would give power to the people and it would make it, make it more difficult for these nations to, or for, for the imperialists to rule over these nations. Okay, so let's talk first about the Native Americans. Two guys in particular, John Elliott and David Brainerd. I'm not going to talk much about John Elliott, who's not to be confused with Jim Elliott, who was the missionary to the Alka Indians much later. But David Brainerd in particular, in some ways, kind of sparked a lot of this mission movement. And actually, he was the first guy that I heard about that I was like, I want to do missions. I want to be like this guy. A quote of his, I care not where I go or how I live or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are first in my thoughts. Tragically, David Brainerd died very young. He died at uh, 29 years old. He died of what was called consumption at that time, tuberculosis. Uh, many people believe that he and Edward's daughter were, were destined to sort of be married. She ended up dying shortly after he died because she took care of him while he was ill. But after Brainerd died, Edwards took Brainerd's journals of his work with the, the Indians, the Native Americans, and he published it with some commentary. And that would be a book that many young men in England and the Americas would pick up and read and be inspired to go overseas. So although Brainerd died young and he basically had almost zero fruit in ministering to the natives in the Americas, his life ended up sort of sowing a lot of missions seeds. And I mean, if you read his stuff, it's just dripping with desire for Jesus and passion for people to know him and a hunger for the gospel to bear fruit. It's, it's really some pretty incredible stuff. After him, and there's lots of people we're not going to cover, but William Carey, you have to touch on him. He would be the father of modern missions. Um, he was inspired by Brainerd's life himself. He considered Edward's published book of the life of Brainerd or the journals, the diary of Brainerd, to be sort of like a second Bible. I mean, that was the kind of thing that inspired him to do some pretty crazy stuff. He would write a document called, a pamphlet called, An Enquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Right? Short title. It's just funny to think about the way that different periods in history uh, express themselves. Like we have to get all of our thoughts into like 240 characters now. Isn't that how long a tweet is? 240 characters. Here's a dude whose title for his book or his pamphlet couldn't, you know, could hardly fit in 240 characters. Um, out of that pamphlet would, would spawn a couple of things. It would begin what were called the missionary societies. So since churches themselves at this point weren't sending missionaries, what sprung up were these missionary societies. So you, almost like email newsletters today, you could subscribe. They would send you their sort of quarterly or monthly pamphlet about things that were going on in the world. You would send them either money to sort of purchase the pamphlet that would go to support missionaries. But they were, they were interdenominational. They weren't affiliated with a denomination or a particular church. And lots of these sprung up. Um, 
William Carey's was kind of one of the first, the Baptist Missionary Society that was originally called the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. And one of the things that they had to deal with in their time was sort of the hyper-Calvinist idea that um, if God wants to convert heathens, he'll do it. If God wants to convert people in other countries, he'll do it. So there's a story that's probably not true that William Carey at one point over dinner with his family was talking about how he wanted to go be a missionary and and he, he was just getting so passionate about it. He stood up and he's basically like preaching to his family and his father essentially said, sit down, young man. If God wants to convert the heathens, he'll do it without you. And so William Carey was Calvinistic in his theology, but he was pressing against a view held by many Calvinists that God didn't need to use people to do the work of or I should say this differently, because God doesn't need to. He was pressing against the idea that God doesn't want to, or God doesn't intend to use people for the work of converting people around the world. Okay, So his goal initially was to just raise up support to send people overseas, but there wasn't much interest. So in the end, William Carey himself ended up going to Calcutta, India. And, I mean, the next uh, couple of stories in particular are just difficult. The, these people encountered incredible difficulty. You have to understand that you're leaving England via boat. The trip to India is, <clears throat> I think, three months by boat. There's, I, I don't, at this point, there's no Suez Canal. So you're going all the way down around, you know, the Cape Horn in Africa and then over to India. It's a long journey. So it's not like you can just come back. Um, very expensive. Anyway, he finally left in 19, or 1793. He left his eight-month pregnant wife. He took with him his oldest son. And the promise was that he would go and kind of do the groundwork to prepare a place for them. That he would come back and he would get her and the rest of his family. And he said as he was leaving, If I had all the world, I would freely give it all to have you and my dear children with me. But the sense of duty is so strong as to overpower all other considerations, I could not turn back without guilt on my soul. Man, that's heavy. Um, that he would be willing to, to make that kind of decision. So once he got to India, eventually he would end up preaching in the open air, you know, kind of in a marketplace every Sunday. And it would be six years before he would see a single convert to the faith. That person was finally baptized, I think, December 28th, 1800. So that's just gnarly. I mean, that, that dude has a lot of confidence in God, a lot of mental fortitude, a lot of courage, a lot of perseverance and hope. During his life, he would bring about some pretty amazing social change. So he really disliked the caste system. I don't know how familiar you are with this in India, but they have a, a social structure that's really difficult to, to move out of. So if you're like in the low caste, I mean, they even have these things that the, these cups, if you're of the low caste and you drink out of a cup, they typically have you drink out of clay cups because once you've had a drink out of it, they have to break it because they can't like wash it and let somebody from a different caste use it. Um, and, you know, William Carey realized that you degrade human the human value the value of the human being when you put people in these social structures that really create poverty and heartache and and injustice 
The other thing that he was known for is stopping uh, a practice called Sati. Sati is the Hindu practice where when the husband dies, you burn his body and the wife, while his body is burning, is, is supposed to immolate herself. She's supposed to jump on the, the pyre and burn herself to death. And William Carey thought that this was just incredibly evil. And so he worked against it. By the end of his life, he had actually brought a, a stop to Sati. So they don't do that in India anymore, thank God. And um, that's traced back to William Carey. But he had a, a difficult life. It was a difficult life for him and his family. Um, he would end up burying... Th no, he would bury two wives and... I don't want to confuse him. Just like Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson also buried two wives. Um, William Carey would bury two wives and I think a couple of his kids as well. And, uh, you know, just just really like poured his life and soul into this work. Before his death, though, he would translate the Bible in whole or in part into 35 different languages. Isn't that gnarly? I don't know how many languages there are in India, but it's like over 100, I think. Uh, so he would do some incredible work. I mean, God just gave him an amazing <coughs> gift for languages. Next up would be Adoniram Judson. And Adoniram Judson is one of my favorites. He, he arrived in Burma in July of 1813. He was 24 years old, and he brought his 23-year-old wife. They've been married 17 months. And when they got there, Burma, which is today... It's called Myanmar. I don't know if you remember, they were in the news a, m a month or two ago because they had like another sort of civil war uprising. There's some like meme video of some lady dancing and in the background is, is the tanks or something like that. I don't know. I don't think I ever saw it. I just heard about it. Okay. The point is uh, Myanmar was a, or Burma was a really difficult place. You had war, you had anarchy in the government. They were super intolerant of other religions. It was just blistering heat. Illnesses like cholera and malaria and dysentery were all present. Um, yeah, Adoniram Judson would go on to bury two of his wives and seven of his 13 children in Burma doing this work. And in fact, William Carey, who knew difficulty, told him not to go to Burma because it was too hard. I mean, if William Carey is telling you not to go there, that's intense. At one point, he was imprisoned. He and his wife for 17 months. They had a, a fairly new baby. They were so malnourished that she was unable to, to, um, to feed the child. They would actually let him out of prison for like an hour at night with an armed guard to go find somebody who could provide food for the baby. At the end of the 17 months, they were released from prison because they needed Adoniram Judson to do some translation from Burmese to English. And so they were set free, but shortly after that, his wife died and his baby died as well. Um, in reverse order, the baby died and then the wife died because they were so malnourished, they, they just could never recover from that. It's said that while he was in prison, they would put him in the stocks during the day. They would literally hang him by his ankles in you know, from from uh, shackles, and while he was doing, while he was hanging upside down for like several hours, he would request pen and paper and a Bible, and he was translating the Bible from English to Burmese. And then after you know a day's worth of hanging upside down like that, they would 
undo his feet, let him go feed his baby, and then bring him back and let him sleep. Crazy, right? And think about this incredible quote. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I would not have survived my accumulated sufferings. That is some Calvinistic theology right there. I mean, there's a dude who is trusting in the goodness and providence of God, even in the midst of incredible difficulty. So when I was in college, I did a semester at Gordon College. And I had a professor there named Paul Borthwick. He taught missions. And Paul Borthwick has traveled all over the world doing missions work as well. And he was in Burma the year, or Myanmar, the year before I was a student of his. And he said that at one point, um, he was talking with one of the, the people there at this conference that he was teaching at. And that guy said to him, basically every Christian in Burma, every Christian in Myanmar, traces their heritage back to their faith heritage back to Adoniram Judson. And today, the Myanmar Baptist Convention has now 3,700 congregations with more than 600,000 people. So if I remember correctly, I don't think Adoniram Judson for his whole life there saw more than like 10 converts. And yet that those seeds that he planted would go on to bear this kind of beautiful fruit by God's grace. David Livingston is another one that we should talk about, a British guy. He was a medical doctor, explorer, and a missionary to Africa. And I think, I, I want to say it's David Livingston that's in the, uh, in the book Heart of Darkness. He had, some, he had some maladies, and there's kind of a cool story. He was sick, and he didn't pray for himself very often just because he was so busy praying for other people. But he was really, really ill. And... Uh, he, he thought that he was close to death and he was praying. And as he was praying, he heard a British voice and the guy said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. I don't know if you've heard that. It was kind of a joke for a while in the English world. And he looks up to find a news reporter from England who had been sent to do a story about him. Because these guys were like, not only missionaries, they were like frontiersmen. They were right on the, the front lines of exploring the world back in the day when the Western world was understanding the globe. And uh, come to find out, here's this guy. He's a, he's a reporter with some British newspaper. He's there to do a story on Dr. Livingston. <clears throat> and he goes on to tell Dr. Livingston, um, you know, I'm an atheist. Don't even try to convert me. I, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with your religion. I'm just here to get a story. But he had in his pocket a vial of medicine that he was asked to deliver to Dr. Livingston that was just what he needed. So here, Dr. Livingston was praying, he was in pain, he was suffering, having a difficult time focusing. And I mean, you have to understand the miracle of this because this is like a two month journey to get to where he's at. And this guy just happens to show up. After spending a couple of months writing this story about Livingston though, he ends up giving his life to Jesus. He just couldn't, couldn't uh, be put off from the gospel because of the guy like Dr. Livingston. So, a quote, God, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. And sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. God had an only son and he was a missionary. Um, he would end up burying his wife as well. Actually, his wife, this is a, this is a sad story. His wife was back in Scotland she wanted to come with him. 
But she said, I'm, I'm gonna stay in Scotland until we raise our children, until they're old enough to be independent on their own. <clears throat> so she did that. I think they were apart for many, many years. And then the day finally came where the kids were old enough, she hops on the boat, she goes to Africa. Literally the day she steps off the boat, she contracts a disease and is dead within a week. So all of that time apart and you know, they, they were essentially not really ever reunited. He ended up dying of malaria while on his knees praying. And the story is that his, the two converts that were sort of his disciples there, they actually cut his heart out. They buried it at, uh, under a tree where he did a lot of his teaching and they, they shipped his body back to England. Um, Monica, your face looks very, like that's very pleasant, right? They just loved him, you know, because his heart was there. It was with those people. It was in Africa, even though his family was back in England. <clears throat> There's another one in here that I didn't put down, but C.T. Studd. I don't know if anybody knows his name. I just really like him because he was actually a cricket superstar in England, like LeBron James style popularity. And he decided to actually give up his career as a... Uh, cricket guy making tons of money being famous playing cricket to go overseas and be a missionary as well you could look him up sometimes CT stud then you have John Williams James Harris followed by John Patton so John Williams and James Harris in 1839 they went to these islands called the New Hebrides in the South Pacific I forget what they're called today but they would be you know Papua New Guinea ish type area and within a few minutes of arriving there, they were clubbed to death. They were cooked and eaten by the natives on the island. And John Patton later would say the New Hebrides were baptized with the blood of the martyrs. And think about how bold this is. He and his wife then would go to those islands in an effort to finish the work that those other two guys went to do. They arrived in 1858. And today, 85% of the people on the main island there called Vanuatu identify as Christians because of that work. It's pretty cool. Hudson Taylor is another sort of uh, famous missionary guy. Maybe you've heard me quote him because he's got a quote I love where he said, um, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But he would start what was called China Inland Mission. He would be in China for 51 years. And by the time of his death, there were over 800 missionaries in China and 18,000 converts. A couple of his other quotes, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And then a young man should ask himself, not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. I mean, these were guys who just firmly believed that, like, the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. And if <clears throat> nobody's going to do it, I'm going to do it. Uh, so, and man, it's, it's painful to see the kind of sacrifices they made. Yet they would say that for Jesus' sake, it was nothing. And at the same time, it's cool to see the kind of fruit that came from their lives, even if it wasn't in the first generation. So I think if you look back at the top of this section, way back on page two, yeah, I have an, in parentheses there, often unsuccessful in the first generation. I mean, most of these people, I guess, um, 
I guess Hudson Taylor aside, most of these people didn't see a whole lot of fruit. They they saw a handful of converts over decades of laboring. So I have on there the, the bullet point contextualization controversy. We can touch on this for a moment. One of the questions that always comes up with doing missions is the, the idea of contextualization. So if you go to a place like, um, let's say Papua New Guinea, and the Bible says, uh, though your sins were as, were as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. What is that? Isaiah something. If people in Papua New Guinea are living in huts in the middle of nowhere, they have no internet, they have you know, no books. Let's go back to this time period. They've never met a Westerner. They've never been off their island. They don't know what snow is. Should you say, you know, your sins will be white as a sand dollar, right? That's contextualization. Or is that changing God's word? For Hudson Taylor, one of his things was, with a lot of these missionaries, there was an inappropriate connection with westernizing. So not only are we going to bring people to gospel, but we want to bring them western culture, western dress, western governance, western economics, these kinds of things. And there is an aspect of, you know, colonialization embedded in that. I won't deny that. Um, but I would say that that was a minority and that was never the the goal. But Hudson Taylor was criticized and one of the reasons was cuz he didn't dress like an Englishman. He wanted to reach Chinese people, so he grew his hair long, he braided it, he shaved the top of it, he wore their clothes, he ate their food, he lived like they lived, so that they wouldn't see him as a weirdo, a foreigner, or also so that they wouldn't think that in, in giving their lives to Jesus, they had to give up their culture. So the idea of contextualization is how much of the Christian message, how much of the Christian experience can be informed by different cultures and how much of it must override the culture. So where this is a, a big debate today is Muslims. Islam is way more than just a religion. It's a culture. So if you're going to bring the gospel to Muslims and they believe, they're going to ask you some questions like, well, can I still go to, to the mosque? You know, if there's no church around, where should I go to worship God? And, and, you know, there's some people that say, yes, you can still go to the mosque as long as you're worshiping Jesus. Other people say, no, you need, to, you need to get rid of all of that, right? And we see this in scripture. I think even uh, Paul's wrestling with, like, do Gentiles need to become Jews? Can they still go to the temple where idols are being, or can they still eat meat, sacrificed to idols that are pagan? We're, we're, we're engaging with these questions. Um, you know, I, I would say that I think it's fair to do some contextualization. I don't think we should ask. Let me, let me put it this way. I think the gospel transcends every culture. And so I think it's fair that there are some aspects of culture that be retained when the gospel interacts with that culture. Um, certainly things like idolatry, that's all going to have to go. You're going to have to you're going to have to shape your theology, your theology biblically. Um, that's inevitable. I don't know. Interesting question. Any thoughts on that? In in missionary circles, it's still a raging debate. Um, I have a question. Oh, I don't know if it's a question. Yeah. Um, but would you say like nowadays, uh, some of the missions are more about doing good works and like bringing all these things? 
things like, like for example, the United States had more land about sharing that tour. Would I say that today that's... Yeah, because I think like there's a lot of missions, well, pre-COVID, a lot of missions and like, come and you can be a missionary for however many weeks, but it's more about like doing good work or more like a, a tourist experience rather than sharing the work of God. Yeah, okay, so what you're talking about is short-term missions. Yeah. Okay, so... Because I, cause I, I deeply love long-term missions. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of going to a different culture where there aren't churches, where there isn't a clear presentation of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, seeing people give their lives to Jesus, be discipled, build up churches. I love seeing that stuff. I mean, th- these stories inspire me. Short-term missions, that's another really tough question. And the reason is because... You know, for me to go to like Africa and spend a week there doing ministry, it's going to cost probably close to five grand. Wouldn't I be better to just simply send that five grand to the church that I was going to go do missions work with, right? That's kind of the question. And, you know, am I just kind of going to scratch my back? Here's the the wealthy, white, Western guy who wants to go be the savior in the poor African bush, right? Certainly there is some of that. I won't deny that. I mean, it is kind of embarrassing that a lot of short-term mission trips end with like, you know, you'll do five days doing missions work and then three days at like a super fancy resort. But um, at the same time, I, so I don't, I, don't, I don't like that idea. I mean, if you're going to go, do work. But at the same time, there is some value. And the value is that I can say from my own experience, having done lots of short-term mission trips all over the world, it has given me a heart to pray for these people. It's given me a heart to send people. It's given me a heart to see the gospel go to places that it's not currently being proclaimed. So what, what's, what's the value of that life change? Priceless, I would say. Um, and if we're going to go back to like God's sovereignty, like 5,000 bucks is nothing to him, right? He can find other ways to, to, to send that money. What is invaluable is the change that took place in my heart. So what I'm getting at is I think there's a balance. I think it's inappropriate to use short-term mission trips as like evangelical uh, vacations. But I also wouldn't go so far as to say that because that might happen, we should not do any short-term mission trips. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to revitalize a missionary who's been there for a long time, you know, continue relationships that your church has with them, maybe do some hard manual labor that they couldn't do without a team. Um, you know, one of the trips that I did was to Pakistan. We were there for two months. There's a long-term missionary there who was doing humanitarian work, building wells so people would have fresh water up in the, the Himalaya mountains. But Pakistan, you can't be a missionary. So he was, he, he couldn't do some prior legwork. So what he did is he brought us in. We actually met in his house in the cover of dark. He loaded up these big backpacks we had with Bibles in the people's native language. And he said, my next, you know, 10 villages where I'm going to be doing this work are up this valley, the next 80 miles. So I want you to spend the next couple of months going up there, giving out Bibles to people so that when I begin to do my work there, there's already Bibles and I won't get thrown out of the country, right? If you guys get thrown out, no problem. But if I get thrown out, I'm undoing 15 years of work here. Mm-hmm. So we could go ahead of him and kind of prepare the way. Um, 
life-changing experience for me. I still pray for those people. I pray over the Bibles that we gave out. So I think that was a hugely valuable investment. Um, but that's a good question. That needs to be, if a church is going to do short-term mission trips, they need to think through that. And I've seen, I have seen too many like, yeah, I just got back from my missions vacation trip. You know, I don't, I don't like that. Okay, Amy Carmichael, she's another superstar. And we do need to point out that several of these, these folks were women, uh, single women. Um, Lottie Moon is another one who went to uh, China. And yeah, they would do this work by themselves because there, was, there weren't any men bold enough to marry them and go with them, or they just felt the burden to go. Um, but Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. She was on the field for 55 years without a furlough. That means she never came back. She never took like a, a respite to come home. One of the big things that she did was bring an end to temple prostitution. She fought against it. So in Hinduism, temple prostitution is totally okay. And one of the ways that the priests make money is by taking young orphan girls, young orphan boys even potentially, bringing them into the temple and you can go in and pay your money to the priest to have sex with that kid and that's you know a form of worship to this hindu god um she thought that that was evil and basically a form of like sex slavery she brought an end to it now i was in india three years ago and they had just had an election where a radically hindu arm of the government gained power and they were bringing temple prostitution back because they say it's it's an authentic expression of the Hindu religion. And, you know, it was these white Westerners who made us stop this. And so they're actually in the process. I mean, they have been bringing it back. It's back. You, you can engage in temple prostitution again in India. Heartbreaking. At one point, somebody wrote Amy Carmichael a letter, a young woman, and, and said, what's missionary life like? And her reply was, missionary life is simply a chance to die. That's intense. Man, even just being reminded of these folks and re-studying this and preparing for this class, you know, God calls every person differently or God, God puts a different burden on every person's life. And we need to be careful not to generalize and apply standards to people that God himself does not stand, does not apply. But you know, reading this, man, I mean, just thinking about these folks, I'm, I'm just convicted, right? My life is very comfortable. It's very easy. I don't suffer much for the sake of Christ. I think about the, the verse that says, and everyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Um, my life doesn't have much persecution. And yet. yet, that might be changing. It's true. And, you know, somebody needs to be here in Maricopa pastoring churches. And so that's what God has given me to do. And I, I enjoy that. But certainly at least I could be praying more for, you know, the folks that are connected to our church who are doing missions work, um, you know, that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. Anyway, I'm just saying it's very easy to live kind of a, a very cloistered view of Christianity and and there's so much more. God, I mean, God's kingdom is just so big. There's so much for us to, to just keep in mind. 
Okay, we're talking about uh, the, the global church here. So the dates are 1789 to the present. So we do need to touch on theological liberalism. And we've talked, talked about this a little bit throughout the class as we've made our way through the Enlightenment. But theological liberalism, in some ways, I would say, it is the, uh, it's the predominant cultural strain of Christianity in America today. And I would say we're even seeing that it's bigger than we thought it was. That within evangelicalism, there is a depressingly large stream of theological liberalism. So theological liberalism has at its core the concepts of social reform, politi political action, and or humanism. And again, we've talked about this. When you take your eyes off of God, when your theology moves from being theology, theocentric, God-centric, and it becomes man-centric, man-centered, anthropocentric, then it's only inevitable that you're going to lose things like, well, just a big concept of God and uh, his holiness and his wrath towards sin and the inerrancy of God's word and his plan of redemption. So theological liberalism is formed a lot by things like reason. And we I wouldn't say that Christianity is unreasonable. Christianity is reasonable. But they would say reason is the, the limits of our understanding. We would say reason has its place within revelation. Okay. Skepticism. So you'll hear from these folks a lot of times. Like we just, we just want to ask questions. We want to ask more questions. And uh, I think that that's silly. What's the point of asking a question? It's to get an answer, right? Uh, science as sort of another limit to human understanding. Anthropocentrism, I already talked about that, and secularism. Theological liberalism is essentially sec secular. So here's just a couple of key concepts. So you can kind of look for them because theological liberalism is still running rampant in our culture today. Humans are progressing towards their potential through self-effort. Um, yeah, we're moving towards sort of a utopia. Man is inherently good. He just needs to kind of realize what's inside of him and let that thing out there, let it free. And we will progress towards a greater society. Second bullet point, humans, uh, human experience must inform how we read and understand the Bible. Guys, I'm, I'm just going to be totally straightforward on this one right now. This is with the, all the racial stuff that's going on. This is the one that's being pushed forward. You as a white person have nothing to say about this subject matter because experience is what matters here. And I, I, that's theological liberalism. That's just a load of crap. I can appreciate your experience and I can mourn for you that you've had that experience. I can also say to you, because God loves you and he's sovereign and he's good, that's the experience he intended for you. But beyond that, I'm going to say, no, the Bible informs your experience, not your experience informs the Bible. If you go that way, you're going to end up giving up the Bible. Um, the third bullet point, scripture must be engaged critically. Not, it's not supernatural. It's not infallible. So you've heard, you know, Thomas Jefferson cut out the, the miracles from his Bible and then he liked his Bible. I mean, theological liberals, I, I just saw a post from a supposed pastor and he's gay and he's a theological liberal 
And he was talking about the story where Jesus encounters the Syrophoenician woman and she's asking for healing for his daughter. And he, and he says to her, it's not right to give the, the children's food to the dogs. And she says, well, even the dogs lick the crumbs from the children's table, right? And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. What you ask is done. This guy was saying that, that in that moment, Jesus was repenting of his racism because he was racist. He called her a dog and that was not, that was mean, right? And then she called him on it and she spoke truth to power and then Jesus repented. Um, that's engaging scripture critically. You don't see Jesus as supernatural. He's not God. He can sin. And obviously the Bible's not infallible. And then you write your experience into it. That's not what was happening at all. Um, Jesus came first to his people, God's people, the Jews. And after that mission, that primary purpose was done, then the gospel, the ministry of God would go to the Gentiles. That was God's intention. Um, and here was a woman of great faith, with greater faith than most of the people in Israel. And so she was blessed because of that. God honored her. Okay, the next one. The Bible must conform to culture, not the other way around. So when culture and scripture come up against one another, it is scripture that must give to culture, to the force of culture. Obviously, conservative Christians or biblically-minded Christians would say anything in culture that doesn't honor God's got to go. We, we just can't engage in it. And we, we don't capitulate the scriptures. We change the culture. And then the last one is imminence without transcendence. So this is theologically Christians believe in both the imminence of God and the transcendence. God is completely other. You, you literally can't know him. You can't see him. You can't comprehend his mind. You can't inform his decisions. You're, you're finite, and what do you know? You know basically nothing. All that you have, God has given to you. Truly, without the Bible, without Scripture, and without the incarnation of Christ, we would know nothing about God. And yet, God is not so other that he doesn't care. You can pray to him and he hears you. He's with you. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The spirit is present inside of you, lives in you. God says you can call him father. So transcendence is the otherness of God. Imminence is the nearness of God. And we have to affirm both of those. But theological liberalism typically says God is not all that transcendent. He's not other. Jesus was just a man. And so because he was a man, you just kind of need to be like him. So they abandon the fact that Jesus is God and they just call him man. All right, in response to liberalism, you had a couple of uh, titans that would hold the line. Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, G.K. Chesterton, I would say even Lewis in his time. And, you know, that, that's that's a progression of time. Chesterton was later than... than uh, uh, actually, Chesterton was right around the same time as Machen, maybe a little bit before Machen, actually. And then Lewis was later. But this is still ongoing. You know, there's still modern day responses to liberalism. Liberalism is not going away. Yeah. Didn't Chesterton, he was more uh, Roman, he, he moved more Catholic. Catholic right? Chesterton was he, Catholic. He, he, he took a lot of tenets, hard Christian tenets, but yet. Was he, he was a Catholic. He was a professing Catholic. But, I mean, if you read his stuff, there's no doubt that he was a Christian. Yeah. Um, he just was in in that vein. And I think you can be, we've talked about this before. I think you can be a Catholic and be a Christian. You're just doing it in opposition to the official teaching of the church. But 
I mean, judge the person based on their own writing, their own theology, um, because that's, I mean, that's the best way to judge them. Honestly, Chesterton is one of my favorite authors. He's amazing. If you want a really good book, there's a book called um, The Complete Thinker by a guy named Dale Alquist, and it's a summary of all of Chesterton's writing and thinking, and it's just a fabulous book, and you'll laugh and you'll cry. You'll cry just because Chesterton was in some ways a prophet. I mean, he was writing 100 years ago, and he saw he saw where we are today. Uh, fabulous book. And he deals with all kinds of stuff. He deals with theology and liberalism and inerrancy and education and the family and the government. He just, he was brilliant. Okay, anyway, and another great book if you really want to deal with Christianity and liberalism, J. Gresham Machen's book called Christianity and Liberalism, which was written in like 1905 or something like that. Because some of this stems, where, where these guys kind of come out of is Princeton Seminary was ultimately ousted by the liberals in the early, yeah, right around, I think, 1900. And these conservative guys would end up going and starting a new seminary called Westminster Seminary. But Machen in particular was super opposed to liberalism within the church. That's a fabulous book. What he asserts is that liberalism is not Christianity. You can call it Christian liberalism, but it is an entirely different religion. It's got a different epistemology, a different soteriology, a different ecclesiology, a different theology. It's not Christianity. Sorry for all the big ology words there. Um, out of this come several strains of theological liberalism. So liberation theology developed as Marxism clashed with Catholicism predominantly in Latin America in like the 60s and 70s. Liberation theology is the idea that uh, salvation is kind of irrelevant. God came to set the captives free and that means here on earth. So, you know, uh, poverty, injustice, slavery, oppression, God wants to change those things and make people's lives better. And and we we would say we would say that Christians should be committed to those kinds of changes in the world. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God came to bring people into his kingdom. People living in his kingdom are going to live a distinctly God-oriented, God-glorifying life that's going to have fruit that changes the world around them. But changing the world around you is not the gospel, okay? Um, man, I, I just I just have to say this. If it is, then Jesus failed. Like he didn't he didn't speak truth to power in the sense of like Herod was still king when Jesus died, and Caesar was still Caesar, right? Um, he didn't raise up armies and overthrow people, and he didn't distribute money to the poor. So, if Jesus was really all about that, he failed miserably. Okay, then out of this, you also have black theology, which I, I kind of got into an argument with somebody on Facebook about this not too long ago. There's no such thing as black theology. There's no such thing as white theology. There's biblical theology and there's non-biblical theology. So if you hear somebody use a term like that, just wholesale reject it. There's either biblical theology or there's no theology. Then you have things like feminist theology, right? These are people reading into the text, all kinds of things that advance the cause of feminism. You have queer theology, which is a new one, trans theology, 
people are basically taking their cultural worldview and imposing it on the scriptures to manipulate it to get it to say what they want it to say. We have to wrap up today. And did they call themselves Christians? Do they call themselves Christians? Are they call themselves Christians? Oh yeah, I I was uh, I, I watched a video this week of a queer pastor in drag talking about drag theology. Yeah, and I I mean it was a train wreck. It was like it was only like six minutes wrong. It was painful to watch. I I couldn't watch more than like two and a half minutes of it, but. It was it was not biblical at all, and yet here's this dude dressed up like a woman talking about Jesus. You know, it just doesn't even make sense. The human heart is hard and um, self-centered, and there's lots more we could say about that. Okay, quick question before I pray: Do you want to get together one more week for like 20, 30 minutes to to finish the last like half of of the page? which will be more kind of my thoughts about what happens from here. Um, or do you want to just end it today? I saw some nods. One more week. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll get together one more week. We'll cover Pentecostalism, the basics of evangelicalism, the church growth movement, and then, you know, sort of my rantings about what I perceive the future to hold for us. And uh, if you have any general questions, we can cover those as well. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for biblical theology that reveals to us a God who is transcendent, is so beyond our ability to comprehend or understand, and yet a God who is so gracious and loving that you are also imminent, you're near. You came in the flesh to show us life and you rose from the dead to give us your spirit that we might walk in newness of life. We praise you for that. And I pray that our allegiance would be to the one true God who is revealed clearly in the scriptures that you have given us. And we thank you for faithful Christians through history. Lord, these missionaries who went to proclaim the gospel, but also the the theologians and, and even just the the average church-going layperson who has fought hard to keep the gospel and fought hard to prove the truth of Christianity through faithful living and just a deep affectionate love for you. And I pray that we would be in that same uh, line of people, that we would follow in their footsteps, that we too would just long to leave a legacy for future generations about what it means to remain faithful to Christ in the face of opposition. So we praise you for these things and pray for grace to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.